And so I'm going to read that, and you're welcome to follow along. This is Stephen speaking to the high priest and his family and likely the Sanhedrin in Jerusalem. Our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it, according to the pattern that he had seen. Our fathers, in turn, brought it with Joshua when they dispossessed the nations that God drove out before our fathers. So it was until the days of David, who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands. As the prophet says, heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord, or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hands make all things? You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. Who you, re- you who received the law as delivered by angels did not keep it. Now when they heard these things, they were enraged. And they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Let's pray. Lord, your word is powerful and potent, um, even more so than it is dramatic. And as we see this first martyr die, shedding his blood for the testimony of Christ, I ask that you would draw our our attention into the message that he died for. What was it that could have possibly offended them so much that he died to deliver this message? So God, I ask that you would make our hearts attentive and that you would perform saving work in those of us who do not know you and that you would also create sanctifying, strengthening work in those who do. For your word is powerful and we can trust it for these things. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, my first question as we open this is to you, maybe this is a good question for our wider culture, does it seem right to you that any one person might be able to be certain about who is in and who is out when it comes to God? That's an idea that is radically offensive to our culture right now. That anybody would have a certainty about who God allows to worship and who God rejects their so-called worship. Would a good God ever think 
in terms of some are in, some are out. Would a loving God ever operate in those categories? There's a popular saying that I've heard that sort of goes like, you know, leave it to God because in the end, he'll just sort everything out. So we don't need to talk about what those differences may be. Well, I agree that God is going to sort it out in the end. But the question that begs our attention is, has God given us any idea as to know with certainty how he will sort people out? By what criteria will he sort them? Is God arbitrary, just sort of selecting who he likes? Or does God have a standard that he has revealed to us? Has he given us a a criteria by which we know he will divide people? It's like if a, a teacher gives you an assignment and you have no clue what they're looking for. And they say, write a one-page story. And you're thinking, okay, well, what class is it? Is it creative writing? Is it grammar? Is it political science? In other words, do I need to focus on spelling or should I focus more on the narrative? As if maybe by time you don't have time to choose both. Well, if it's all about spelling and grammar, then who cares about the storyline? You focus on that and you get that right. But if it's all about an imaginative story and it doesn't matter how things are spelled, then you're going to focus all your attention on creativity and drawing inspiration. In other words, you need to know how that teacher is going to mark that assignment before you write it. In the same way, how are you going to live your life? What are the things that you're going to prioritize in your life before we come to the living God and he judges us and separates us into the categories of in and out? So Mike, as you heard that, my question is that if, if what Stephen said is true, and if the anger that we saw at the end there, the gnashing of teeth and the killing of this man, if that anger was real, then I think that there is a major statement that God is making about that very reality. There is a definitive statement about who knows God and who doesn't, who is close to God and who is not who is truly his and who is not. He says at the end, you who received the law did not keep it. How can Stephen make that claim? How can Stephen say that to them? You did not keep it. And so we have a speaker and we have an audience. The preacher is Stephen and the audience is the Jewish leaders, the Sanhedrin, the 70 uh, elders in Israel. So the context of this passage is that the baby Christian church, very young, has broken out into ministry. The gift of the Holy Spirit has been given just as Jesus promised. You need to wait in Jerusalem until the Holy Spirit comes. And now ministry has broken out, which in the apostolic age, the apostolic age means the time in which the 12 or 11 apostles, the disciples, were renamed apostles, the apostolic age is the age in which they conducted their ministry. It's called the apostolic age. It sounds very theological, but it's just the lifespan of the ministry of those 12 guys. Bartholomew, Thomas, Peter, John, James, James, right? Thaddeus. It's the ministry of those 12 apostles, 11 after Judas uh, left their company and died. We are told during that age, 
that the ministry consisted of signs and wonders and preaching the gospel. Because preaching the gospel was the work that would save people and signs and wonders proved to people that were listening that God was truly with them. We're told that signs and wonders were done by the hands of the apostles. Where is this all taking place? It's taking place in Jerusalem. This is the birthplace of the church. It's the birthplace of the gospel of Christ. It's the starting and launching point for the great commission that Jesus gave his apostles in Matthew 28. You will make disciples of all nations, first in Jerusalem, then Judea and Samaria, and then all the world. So there's this geocentric sort of expansion of the gospel beginning right there in Jerusalem, where our text takes place, where this preaching is taking place. So we need to recognize that the gospel first came to the Jews. The Messiah, the promised Savior of Israel, did come to Israel in the first place to say, I am your Messiah, I am your salvation, I am your restoration. And Jesus came first to his own people, and John 1 tells us that his own people rejected him. His own people, the Jews, rejected him. Even though he was of Jewish birth, he was um, of the lineage of David, King David. He had royal blood. These leaders have already heard the gospel preached and they have even heard an invitation to come and believe. Peter preached that sermon to them earlier on. They've been healing and Peter preached a sermon basically describing their sin as rejecting Jesus and killing him, but saying you must believe in him. In other words, there's hope even for the worst of the worst, the people who killed Jesus themselves. They are invited to come and be forgiven by the blood that he shed. But this time is different. This is not a sermon to call to repentance. This is a speech. This is an apologetic to expose their error. It's to expose the futility of what they're doing. It's to expose the hard-hearted, dead-end street that they are running down full speed. Stephen is now making a statement on behalf of God that they have entrenched themselves in this sin, in this error of rejecting Jesus. Which is really sad because when God gives leaders to people, he holds those leaders to a very high accountability. God has high expectations for people he puts in leadership. And so when a leader leads people astray, God is extra displeased with those leaders. In the New Testament, we're even told, let not many of you become teachers for you will be held to a higher standard than others. And in the same way, these leaders of Israel were meant to help Israel find their Savior, to help Israel recognize their Messiah. When they saw the Messiah coming, those who knew the Scriptures, they were supposed to say to their people, there he is, just like John the Baptist, right? There, behold, look, there is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. But instead, what do they do? They reject. They hold Jesus out and they say no. Matthew chapter 15, Jesus addresses this. Matthew 15, 14, Jesus says to the people, he says, leave them alone. Forget about these leaders for they are blind. And if the blind lead the blind, then they both fall into a pit. That's where that saying first comes from. In other words, these leaders are blind. And they are meant to be the ones who see. 
They are meant to be the ones who understand what's going on in the world. And when Jesus comes, they say, hey, blind people, come and follow us. We'll take you to your Savior. But instead, because of their blindness, they also reject Christ. Jesus said also to the Pharisees, you are hypocrites. You not only do not enter the kingdom yourselves, but you prevent people from entering. They have so badly mismanaged their responsibility to lead God's people. And so God is making a statement to them at this point that their opportunity has ended. God's redemptive shift in history, we've been talking about the historic redemptive arc of Scripture God is now, in this point, and and the text foreshadows it, God is making a shift away from the nation of Israel in terms of where God pours his revelation, where God rests. We just, Dave chose a wonderful psalm to open with, that God has chosen Zion as his resting place, for he has chosen it, he has desired it. God is shifting his presence And his meeting place, the privilege of Israel, he is now taking and giving to others. He is shifting his historic redemptive revelation outward from the nation of Israel. And these men are those who represent that nation. So let's look at our text. It begins with, our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness. Stephen has been going through the history of Israel to teach these leaders what the text really is all about and to show them how they have uh, not believed it properly. And so he says to them, our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness. If that just goes right over your head, that's okay. So after God saved the Hebrews out of Egypt, they were now a people free from slavery, but they had essentially no governance. They had they had a leader named Moses who told them about God, but they really didn't know who is this God? What's he like? What's he about? How do we interact with him? Do we interact with him? Or do we just believe that he created everything and he's off in the distance and we live our own lives? Well, the tent of witness was instruction that God gave to Moses to say, build a tent and it'll be in the wilderness. It's a, it's a portable tent. It's large, but it's portable. And it would be a place inside of which there would be furniture, there would be an altar, there would be a place for burning incense, there'd be a place for offering sacrifice. It was a place where the priests could go in and intercede between God and man in order that man would know what God is like. The tent of witness, it was literally a meeting place between God and his people. So that people, when they knew There's a God who saved us. This is what he's like. We have to sacrifice animals because he's holy and we have sinned. Well, and he's a God that we can talk to. We light this incense when we pray so that we see the smoke rise up and it's like our prayers going up to God and he hears us. So they're learning who God is through this tent. The tent of witness is a witness from God to his people. This is what I'm like. That's pretty cool. It was so that they could have assurance of having a right relationship with God because the alternative is for them to just go and invent a religion of their own, right? To just say, well, what if we want to worship this God? What should we do? Do you know what pagans did when they worshiped false gods? 
because these false gods never revealed what they were like because they are not real. In such a dramatic effort to try to appease their gods and make their gods pleased with them, these pagan religions would sacrifice children. Children, innocent children. They would kill thinking that the gods would be pleased with their devotion. Look how much we're giving up. We're giving up our own children. That's what happens to humanity when God does not give instruction. How do we know we can make God happy? God said, you don't sacrifice your children to me, right? You sacrifice an animal, and we may think that that's grotesque, but without that revelation, we have people sacrificing children. And so God is so gracious and so merciful. It was, in fact, the building of this tent, the revelation of this tent was an act of grace of God. It was God revealing his presence to people who otherwise would have no idea who he was. It was a disclosure in some small part about who, God's, who God was, what his nature was like, what his character was like. And it was where he manifested his presence. It's where God would meet with people. If there's ever an important question that our time is asking, it's how can we know how to meet with God? How can we know where God is? How can we interact with him? How can we worship him properly? How could we possibly know when there are so many seeming good paths? How do we know how to meet with God? By God's grace, he reveals it. This is how you come to me. This is how you worship me. It is on his terms that he would meet with them inside that tent. It was on his terms. We have accounts in the Old Testament of when people tried to come to God on their own terms, God struck them dead because it was people saying, I'll just worship God in the way that it feels right to me. I'll just light this fire over here. I'll just criticize this leader over there and I'll just... I'll go to God in my own way. And God said, no, you won't. You will come in the way that I tell you. That is an act of grace because God is good and he is holy and he is perfect. So what, what happens to the tent? So they have it in the wilderness, Moses, and they, they create it. Verse 45, our fathers in turn brought it with Joshua when they dispossessed the nations that God drove out before our fathers. So God had promised to Abraham, I'm going to give you a land. I'm going to give you a land, right? Abraham never lived to see that happen. Abraham died very likely in Egypt. And he promised that your children were, are going to go and take this land. This land is Canaan. And they're going to drive out the people that live there because those people aren't just going to say, hey, come take our land. So God is going to drive them out and he's going to bring the Israelites in. Now, they brought the tent of meeting with them. They weren't like, woohoo! We're out of the wilderness. Let's get into the promised land. We don't need that old tent anymore. No, you know why? Because that's the place they met with God. And when God promised to Abraham that he would save them, it was for the purpose of worship. Salvation always comes with it, the purpose of right worship with God. In fact, Stephen even quotes that when he's talking about Abraham, when God said, I will save you so that your people will worship me there. When they get there, they will worship me properly, finally. And so they bring this tent with them. Joshua was the leader that replaced Moses. Moses died in the wilderness. Did you know that? Moses never made it to the promised land. Joshua was the warrior who dispossessed the nations, who cut down the armies that stood in the way 
of Israel. Joshua is the Hebrew name for Jesus. That is no coincidence. The uh, military leader who brought Israel into the promised land was the Hebrew translation for the name of Jesus Christ, Jesus, who would bring his people into the final promised land. That is no coincidence of scripture. That is God's uh, sovereignty over history. And so he says, they brought it in, they brought in God's presence so that they could continue to worship in the promised land. And it was that way until the days of David, their great King David. David was a central figure in the history of Israel. It's like the American conservatives looking back on Reagan. It was, I don't know, in, I don't even know in Canada who we would, Diefenbaker, some, some fearless and, and right-hearted uh, quality person who did what was right. I think David eclipsed both Reagan and Diefen. Baker and all the others. Uh, David truly loved the Lord. He made awful mistakes, but he was uh, their good king. He was the model of either, you know, they would say, uh, if it was a good king, they would say of him, oh, he went the way of his father David. That's like what David would do. So David was this good king, and, and David was the one that God promised would have a throne that endured forever. It says in verse 46, he found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. That's a cool story. I think it's 1 Chronicles 17. You should read that. David says to God, God, I'd like to build you a permanent house. That's what I'd like to do. You know, you've got this tent and that's okay, but I'd like to build you a real house with bricks and with, with stone and with a permanence and it'll be extravagant. And God has this amazing answer. He says, David, I'm going to build for you a house that never, ever vanishes. Do you know what he meant by that? What he meant by that was, I'm going to establish your house, your line forever. Do you know how that was fulfilled? It was fulfilled in his son, Jesus Christ. Jesus was in the bloodline of David. Jesus assumed the throne of David, never to be displaced. And so God built a house for David rather than David building a house for God. That fell, in verse 47, to Solomon. Solomon was the king who came after David who built the temple. The temple. So we have this tent in the wilderness that gets brought in and then the temple replaces the tent built by Solomon, the wise king. We're told that Solomon was arrayed in splendor. He was a king of wealth and security. All of the hard-fought battles that his father David had won, Solomon benefited from that peace. Their borders had been established. Their threats had been eliminated. And so Solomon could be the king who devoted his time to a building project. You cannot be a king of war and a king of building at the same time. Kings of war are on the move. Their resources need to go to food, provision, horses, weaponry. A king of peace can devote time and energy and training into building a great temple. And so this falls, falls to Solomon. And so the temple was a replacement of the tent. What does that mean? It was a sign that God was establishing his permanence and his enduring presence with his people as a nation rather than merely as a traveling tribe. Okay, they built a tent in the wilderness so that they could worship while they were moving around and traveling. But when it came 
to the promised land, God said, you're not going to have a temporary tent anymore to worship me. I am going to build for you a temple in the capital city. In the capital city. We have it today, right? Capital cities are meant to be built up. They're meant to be a sign of authority. They're meant to be a sign of control, which is why parliamentary buildings and in, in the United States, the Capitol building and the White House are meticulously maintained. No expenses spared on the buildings of legislation because they represent the center of that nation. They represent the heartbeat of that nation. We understand that today. And so when the temple moved into Jerusalem and they built it there, it was, this is where God has chosen to make his home. If you want to meet God, you come here. During Passover week, thousands would flock to Jerusalem because they knew in the temple they could worship God in the way that God had asked them to. So they knew that God was accepting of their worship. What a gracious act. What a gracious thing that God would provide a place where if people obeyed him, they could come and they could be found truly worshiping him. And so this represented a nation whose head and whose ultimacy was a personal God. It was not just some deity. It was a personal God who interacted with his people in this meeting place. That's what the temple's all about. It was a monument to God's presence with them through the centuries. It was highly prized, rightly so, by the Jews. It was highly prized. We should note of the tent and the temple that the instructions for the building of both came down out of heaven. They did not hire an architect to design uh, the most useful open concept temple to maximize space. The instructions for the temple came down from God. And that's amazing because when, when it comes to worship and religion, by definition, it needs to be revealed by the God who you're worshiping. Otherwise, you're, you're worshiping a God of your own creation. We see that in our culture like crazy today. It's like, I, I will just worship in the way that I want. Then you're not necessarily worshiping the right God. Because if you worship the way that you want, you are worshiping a God of your imagination. I think this is how God wants to be worshiped. I think this is what God wants of me. I think, I think, I think. God says, you don't need to think like that. I'll show you how to worship me. I'll show you who I am. You can come and know for certain you are worshiping the right God. That's why the temple's an act of grace. Sincerity does not permit us true worship. Sincerity is not the mark of a true Christian. It is the object of our praise. We may be totally insecure about our faith, but if our faith is in Christ, then it doesn't matter how we feel about it. So God's uh, worship came down out of heaven. Now, why doesn't God live there? This is, after all of that, Stephen's going to abruptly change gears here. But it was Solomon who built a house for, for him, verse 47, verse 48. Yet the Most High does not live in houses made by hands, as the prophet says. What? I thought, what? There's a temple. He said he was going to meet them there. It's like, a, wasn't it a, like, it seems like a dramatic shift. And even as compared to our psalm this morning, where David read for us that God said, I have chosen to make my dwelling there. 
But in Isaiah, God says, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Like, just curious, what, what would you build me if you were to build me a house? Would it be gold? Ooh. Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all of these things? See, the Jews had this idea that God needed them to build a house. Poor God, he's homeless. He must be in a cardboard box somewhere. We better build him a nice cozy temple so that he can go in there. We can go check on it. We'll go in there. We'll check on God. We'll just see if he's good or if he needs some warm milk. Okay, this sounds irreverent, but truly the idea that we could house God in a box that we made is, is crazy because God says, I made the heavens and the earth. Where would I rest that you made for me? I just want to read to you out of the book of Job, which is this amazing account of a faithful man who loses everything. And at first he is not happy about it, rightfully so. And then yet he has this experience with God and he sees God for who God truly is. Job 37 I'd like to read that for you and you can mark it down. You can follow along if you're, if you're there. Job 37.2 says, Keep listening to the thunder of his voice and the rumblings that come from his mouth. Under the whole heaven he lets it go and his lightnings to the corners of the earth. After it his voice roars, he thunders with his majestic voice and he does not restrain the lightnings when his voice is heard. God thunders wondrously with his voice. He does great things that we cannot comprehend. For to the snow, he says, fall on the earth. Likewise to the downpour, his mighty downpour. He seals up the hand of every man. Did you hear that? That all men whom he made may know it. Then the beasts go into their lairs and remain in their dens. From its chambers comes the whirlwind and a cold from the scattering winds. By the breath of God, ice is given. And the broad waters are frozen fast. He loads the thick clouds with moisture. The clouds scatter with lightnings. They turn around and around by his guidance to accomplish all that he commands them. On the face of the habitable world, whether for correction or for his land, for love, for he causes it to happen. This is a description of how God runs the universe. By sitting in heaven and speaking. He spoke the universe into creation. How, how could he be contained in a limestone, gold overlaid box in one city, in one country, in one part of the world? So what, what they failed to recognize was that the temple was for, for their benefit. It wasn't for God's benefit. It was for them. It was an act of grace to people that God gave them instruction for a temple. The gift of entering the temple and knowing that there is a God who loves you and this is how you can worship him, that is the gift of the temple. It's his presence. It's not so that God finally feels like he has a place to be. Temples of pagan religions compensated for how pathetic their gods were. Pagan gods who did nothing were useless. So they built these massive monuments to them to compensate for how useless they were. With God, it's the opposite. The most grand structure we can possibly build 
would be equivalent to us witnessing the glory of one of the molecules on the corner of his sandal, if he were to have one. The glory of the most incredible building we could ever make would be equivalent to witnessing something that small on the living God. Those buildings were for their, for their good. And so here's the problem. They thought that, it was, that God needed them. They thought that God lived there and that they were the caretakers of God's presence. The temple was supposed to be a meeting place where anybody could come to offer sacrifice according to the law to enjoy the hope of God's good grace. Notice not to earn, not to earn God's good grace, but to enjoy it. To enjoy that relationship with God. When Jesus was a, uh, a young boy, his parents took him to Jerusalem according to the law, according to the feasts. They followed that relational pattern that God had given. But the problem with the Jews was that they thought that the temple was the point. And so they made it a gate that they could throw uh, controls over, that they could make it a point of leverage and extortion as if God's presence could be bought or sold. So this is how they started treating the temple. Jesus exploded upon this reality in John chapter two during the Passover. When people came from afar, traveling long distances, not easy to travel with pigeons or doves or lambs. So the Jews thought, well, here's what we'll do. We'll set up vendors there. It's like when you go to a hockey game and they know you can't bring your own beer, so they charge $21 a beer. It's a very superficial analogy, but these people were coming in the hopes of worshiping God. And they set up vendors. Oh, you want to worship God? We have pigeons here that you can sacrifice to him. Only three times retail price. And the people would pay it because they wanted to worship God. Jesus explodes on this. He cleanses the temple, which is a very polite way of saying he flipped the tables and he made a cord, a whip to drive out the animals and to, to overturn the tables and to get rid of all of that wickedness. It wasn't because selling something in or near the temple had its own inherent sin. It's because they were preventing people from worshiping. They were trying to gain from God's presence as if they could be dispensing his presence. This was so heinous to the son of God. And the disciples remembered what was written, zeal for your house will consume me. For the Lord says, my house shall be called a house of prayer. What is prayer but communion between God and his people? Prayer is communion. Prayer is our words going up to God and God hearing them. It is supposed to be a place where people can come and worship God. And here they are feeling like they have to stand in line to get a pigeon as if that's what God really, really wants. And so the temple was supposed to be this place of worship. That's why God doesn't live there. Because he cannot be contained, it's for our benefit. And, and if he were to restrict himself to that reality, this is what would take place with the leaders. And so this is how we account for the sin that Stephen gets at. So he finishes with that. He says, did not my hands make all of these things? And then he pushes into his final rebuke. You thought that the Lord was there and that you could put red tape around it, and that you could control God's religion. You could control his people. You could do it your way. And he says, you stiff neck 
people uncircumcised in heart and ears, meaning far from God. You have not come to God humbly. Your eyes and your heart and your ears are uncircumcised. You are pagans in the way that you live. You do not know God. You always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? What a rhetorical question. In other words, your fathers were so wicked. They persecuted so many of the prophets, it would be easier for us to find one that they did not. He condemns them for having broken God's law which is what they accused him of in the beginning. That's how this whole thing got started. They pulled Stephen in and they said, hey, we think you're a lawbreaker. And so Stephen gives this whole speech and at the end of it, he says, you have broken the law. You have broken God's law. And this is what enrages them. So here's what, Jesus, here's what Stephen is doing. We need to draw right into this. Stephen is reinterpreting the Old Testament in, in the light of Jesus' complete ministry. Jesus is reinterpreting the Old Testament in the light of Jesus' complete ministry. In other words, you cannot know what the Old Testament is fully about unless you recognize that Christ has died, rose again, and gone up into heaven to rule. Stephen is giving them the Christocentric reading of the law, the Christ-centered reading of the law. That's what this whole speech is about. He's saying the whole history of Israel, the whole writing of the law, the whole Mount Sinai, the whole Exodus, the whole Passover, the whole feasts, the whole conquering the nations, all of that comes to fulfillment in Jesus. Now here's the problem. During Israel's history, he talks about the prophets. They were sent to bring them back into a covenant relationship with God. That's why they were sent. They would turn away from God. They might still practice the rituals, but their hearts had gone so far from God that God would send a, a prophet to say, come back to God. Turn your hearts back to him. Worship him in holiness and in truth. And instead of humility, instead of receiving the prophets and saying, yeah, we messed up, uh, they, they mocked, abused, and killed these messengers until God sent a final messenger. I have to read this passage for you in Luke chapter 20, starting in verse nine. He began to tell, this is Jesus, he began to tell a parable to the people. A man planted a vineyard and lent it out to tenants and he went to another country for a long while. When the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. How many of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And he sent another servant, but they also beat and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. How many of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And he sent yet a third. This one they wounded and cast out. How many of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? Then the owner of the vineyard said, what shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Let us kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What will the owner of the vineyard do to them? 
He will come and destroy those tenants and he will give the vineyard to others. And when they heard this, they said, surely not. But he looked at them directly and said, what then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. And so after all of this, after the son is sent and rejected and killed, God reacts, he removes their privilege and he gives that privilege to others. That's what's happening right here in Acts chapter seven. God is removing the privilege from national Israel. Those wicked tenants that God has given the land to care for it, to bear spiritual fruit to God, They've rejected all of the servants. They've treated them all shamefully. And then he says, perhaps they will respect my son. And instead of respecting the son, they think if we kill him, everything will be ours. That's what's happening. They're saying, we don't need the son of God. We have a great religion here. We can own it all. The temple, the sacrifice, the Talmud, all the laws, everything. It'll be ours. And God says, no, it won't. I'll destroy you. I will destroy you for killing my son. And to these leaders, Stephen says, you are no different than your fathers. You come from the same thinking, thinking that it's all about you, thinking that God has somehow privileged you and cannot revoke it. So why are they cut off? Because they made the stone temple the ultimate thing. That's why. They made the stone temple the ultimate thing. When they first pull Stephen aside, they say, we heard that you were talking about the temple being destroyed. So we're gonna stone you because God wants to kill people who wanna wreck his building. If you egg God's house, God will get you. That's what they're saying. They have made the stone, the, the stone temple the ultimate thing. When God meant the temple to prepare them to welcome Jesus Christ, how do we know this? John chapter two, verse 18, Jesus says, do you see this temple? Do you see the temple? Destroy it. And in three days, I will raise it up again. And they said, how could you do that? This took 40 years to build. And Jesus said, I am the temple. I am the temple. Do you see this temple? Destroy it and it will make no difference to God because I am the temple. They destroyed Christ, his body, and he was raised up again. Christ is the temple, which means that Christ is the meeting place between God and man. Where he used to meet with them in the tent, then the temple replaced the tent. God would meet with his people there then he sent his son. And his son did not just make the temple great. The son said, I am the temple. Put aside the old temple. Put aside the stone temple. I am where you will meet with God. Me. You will meet with God in Christ alone. He is your communion with God. John 1.11 says, The word became flesh and dwelt among us. Dwelt among us is one word in the Greek. It means tabernacled. Tabernacled means to pitch one's tent among. Isn't that so crazy that God pitched his tent with us? 
It's the same word for tent of meeting. The meeting place has been pitched among us. And we can come to God in this meeting place through repentance, through belief, through confession. Christ is the only law keeper. And these men stood by saying, we will have our place and our religion and God will accept us because we think we have kept the law. Galatians 5 and James chapter 2 both tell us the same thing, that if you receive the law and you think you can come to the God based on the law, and if you stumble in one little part of it, you're guilty of all of it. You cannot keep the law and please God. You know what we need? We need a law keeper, Jesus Christ. And so when they reject God's provision for a relationship, then they reject God. They're condemned. This is why Peter can, or Stephen can say to them, you did not keep the law. You failed. You rejected God. You are now condemned. How can he justify that? Because they have rejected God's meeting place. If you reject God's meeting place and go somewhere else, it is not God's fault that he is not there. He has told you where he's meeting. Does that make sense? If you call up a friend and say, meet me at Boston Pizza, and you show up to Giant Tiger, you're like, where were you? I was where I said I would be, in my son. I am, the fullness of God is in Christ. So that's the only place we can meet. People say Christians are exclusive because we say we're, we're right. Our faith is, an ex is exclusive by definition because we believe God's presence is in Christ. If it's in Christ, it's not anywhere else. And so we don't do anybody any favors by saying, yeah, maybe God will meet you there too. Because God doesn't promise that. He promises that he will meet us in his son. So we have the first martyr. They were enraged and they ground their teeth. But he, full of the spirit, gazed up into heaven and saw the glory of God. Deuteronomy 29 also quoted in Romans 11 says, I have given them a spirit of stupor, eyes that see not and ears that hear not. It says they stopped up their ears and they rushed at him, grinding their teeth. They are now overflowing and foaming with rage. They will not come to God on God's terms. And so they're angry because they have been condemned in their ways. I love this because they stop up. They're blinded with rage. They stop up their ears. They're literally grinding their teeth. What does Stephen do? He looks up and his spiritual eyes are opened. And when he sees a vision of the glorified Christ, Ephesians chapter one tells us that after Jesus went into heaven, he was seated at the right hand of God and received a name that is above every name. Stephen got to see that. Stephen looked up into heaven and all of his senses were wide open. He saw the living Christ seated at the right hand of God. He's like, that's the truth. That's what's true. These sad men are blinded. And so Stephen dies as a true missionary. He cried out with a loud voice, do not hold this sin against them. Even as they killed him, he prayed that they would believe. That's what a true, mission, that's what a true Christian thinks like. We don't think, I hope God will condemn people in their unbelief. We don't think, oh, they deserve what they're going to get. Even after delivering this condemning message, Stephen says, I pray that they will not be condemned. I pray that God will forgive them. That is the heart of a Christian because we know we deserved not forgiveness. We deserved nothing. We deserve no meeting place with God. We deserve no true living worship, yet we've been given it. So how should we pray for those who hate us, 
who persecute us. We should pray that God does not condemn them, that they come to faith in Christ. So God's redemptive plan is perfectly following Jesus' parable. That now historic Israel will not be the center of God's expression of his presence. It will be in the church, the body of Christ. You see why we're called the body of Christ? Because that is the meeting place between God and his people. It's Christ. We are the body of Christ. We are the place where God makes his dwelling. He is meeting with us here and now today in our prayers, in our song, in his word. He is with us because we are the body. We are built up not like physical stones. Peter says we are like living stones where God makes his inhabitants. He dwells with us. Standing by is Saul. While Saul, in a couple chapters, is going to meet the living God. And instead of being condemned, God is going to have mercy on this Saul and he's going to change his name to Paul. And Paul is going to become the greatest missionary to the Gentiles ever, the greatest church planter ever, the greatest single instrument of the growth of the church probably ever. He's going to go on a missionary journey to the Gentiles because God is saying, I am removing the vineyard from historic national Israel and I'm giving it to others. That's Gentiles. That's you and me. We are the beneficiaries of that redemptive plan. The gospel has, excuse me, now come to us. It has come to us. And so any notion that you might hear about that God is, is going to somehow reestablish his presence in a physical temple uh, is crazy because it denies the reality of Christ. Christ is everything. He is all in all. All of the Old Testament looked ahead to his redeeming work and all of New Testament ministry looks back on his redeeming work as the basis for meeting with God. We look forward to the return of Christ, but we know that that is the end of everything. There is no new revelation for people to be saved when Jesus comes back. Now is the time of salvation. This is the message of salvation. Do you want to know God? Do you want to meet him? Then come to his son, for that is where you will meet the living God. The, the offense of the gospel, it's such good news. Why would anybody be offended by it? Because the gospel maintains that you cannot come to God your own way. You cannot. It doesn't matter how sincere you are. It doesn't matter how well thought you are. It doesn't matter how enlightened or educated you are. God will not accept your worship on your terms. He will only allow those to come to him who come by his terms. His terms are Christ. Christ has borne the full weight of our guilt. He has given us his righteousness. He has kept the law on our behalf. Jesus says, my burden is light and my yoke is easy. Christ did all the work for us. So when God says, come to me on my terms, he doesn't mean a whole long list of things you need to specially do for God. He just means this name, Jesus Christ, those are my terms. Because only in him has all of my requirements been met. They are satisfied. When Jesus died on the cross, Christ declared, it is finished. It's finished. Man clamoring for God in his own way is done because Christ has finished the work, which is why there's no other name because nobody else can declare it is finished. Hostility between man and God is over. Only Christ could declare that. What a hope we have in the gospel.